Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, regular listeners, you may have spotted that we've changed our name. It's now Honey and Co. The Food Sessions. So if you hear this sound, it's just us making dinner. Well, that and the fact that we're not allowed to use our old title anymore. It's just been a bit of a thing, but don't worry about it. We hope you enjoy the show. Just don't touch my kids. Who run this mother? Who run this mother? Who run this mother? Who run this mother? Hi, everyone, and welcome to Honey and Code. This series is called Who Run the World? And we're celebrating women in food. Tonight, we're talking to multi-award winning food journalist Sheila Dillon. Sheila is known as the voice of the food program on BBC Radio 4. She started her career in journalism when she reported about pesticides found to have leaked into the water supply in New York. She's been reporting on the most important stories in the industry ever since, from BSE to horse meat scandal, from GM crops to health hazards and vegan junk food. Please help me in giving Sheila a huge welcome. You've just been a part of the the 40-year celebration of the BBC Food Programme. I was just listening to it. Yeah. And you joined it as a reporter, then a writer, then a producer, and now you present it. Tell us a bit about all of... Well, um, it was set up by Derek Cooper. He was an unusual man in that he thought that food deserved to be taken seriously, you know, that it wasn't just a matter of the plate, but he thought that the pleasures of the plate, which he really was big on, he loved to eat, although he couldn't boil an egg, literally could not (laughs) boil an egg, but he loved to drink. And uh, he just thought there was a way of treating food that could really illuminate the world. He persuaded the controller of Radio 4 to uh, a six-part series and possibly slightly apocryphal tale was that this was commissioned. And then halfway through, Derek went to see her and said, could they go on after the six weeks? And she said, my dear, surely after six weeks you'll have said everything there is to be said about that. (laughs) And he said, well, I think think we could probably go on a bit longer. Anyway, 40 years. 40 years. Uh, So, uh, I mean, I'd been in New York. I was working in New York. I'd had my revelation about the pesticides and I'd moved from general journalism to working for this wonderful magazine called Food Monitor and I wrote this column called Food Biz where I just followed the global companies because... My husband, who was an investigative financial journalist, even though he benefited immensely from my cooking, um, he still thought that 
you know, was this a serious subject? And he said, well, if you're going to do it, follow the money, which actually... But were you getting into food because you were interested in food? Or is it well, I'd always been interested in food. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I look back at my childhood and realise I must have been a really greedy <laughs> child because I, my first memories are, you know, t- smells of food. My grandmother was a great cook. My mother was a great cook. I loved food. And, and actually, when I, when I was freelancing in New York... I would fill in for a friend of mine who was on Wall Street. There was a commodities house. When she couldn't do it, I would cook and I would help her in her catering company. But I never thought it was a job. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought journalism was a job. And I never thought I could put the two together. So if you're in New York... Well, I just had this... I had this... I just was so outraged by this pesticide story, this... This pesticide, Eldicarb, was being put on potatoes and you know, on Long Island, you know, big commercial crops. And it had gone through to the aquifer, this Eldicarb, which was supposed to decay within 100 days. You know, yeah, right. And people were getting sick. And uh, so they'd closed the, you know, the wells. That this, and um, they were tanking water in. And I thought, well, OK, if it's in the water, what is it in the potatoes? So I went down to the library at 42nd Street and... Um, I looked up, you know, uh, pesticide residue limits, and I was astounded to discover how much input the the pesticide industry had into setting those standards. And the science was just just a laugh, really. You know, what killed a rat, the weight of a rat compared to the weight of an adult male? Like, I won't go into it, but it was pretty shocking. And then I thought, well, who's writing about this? And at that time, there weren't really very many people doing that kind of food journalism And so a friend of a friend said, why don't you volunteer? And there was this magazine called Food Monitor. And then I also, there was a food group in the Bronx that was, you know, working in a food desert trying to get fresh food. And so I volunteered at both. And my husband was very agitated because he thought I was turning into his mother, you know, (laughs) who was this brilliant woman, but, you know, she'd volunteered all her life and never had a real job. And um, so he was anxious anyway the food monitor offered me a job so that was fine so you, so you got a job but you had some kind of agreement with your husband about jobs anyway back we in did the day. Yeah. yeah and when we got married I'd been involved in the women's movement and I was in fact when just shortly before we were married I was involved in this sex discrimination case against Little Brown which was had been bought by Time Life and um, we were suing them for sex you know and, and Peter was a great support in that which we won. It was one of the first... Um, this was about pay gaps. So. At that time, it's hard to believe now. But uh, Little Brown only recruited men from uh, the Ivy League and women from the Seven Sisters. The, I mean, I was an oddity, but I was British, so you know they kind of didn't even think about it, and I didn't explain to them. I'd gone to a red brick <laughs> university, and it was all, you know, vulgar and awful. But... Um, <laughs> Anyway, the men were all put into trade publishing, you know, the the prestigious arm, to learn to work with editors, and we were made into copy editors. And the men, from the the beginning salary, was two and a half times what the women made. That's what we were. We were looking at training, the jobs that you got, and the salaries, which was so obvious. It wasn't that hard to win, really. It's not exactly obsolete at the moment. I mean, the BBC no. is rife with a lot of conversation about pay gaps now. Yeah. And you had this as well when you started, no? When I was offered the job of taking over from Derek, the head of our department offered me this absurd sum of money, which I knew was about half what Derek had been paid. And I said no. And then contracts rang me at home and said, 
I'm sorry, this is the final offer. And I said, well, find yourself another presenter then and put the phone down because I was so angry. Then they came up with a reasonable amount of money for what it takes to present the food program, how many days reporting and traveling and everything. Let's go back to this arrangement with your husband because I find oh, yeah, that sorry. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, we, we uh, sidetracked a bit, but it's okay. Uh, well, because Peter you know, came into my life while I was really involved in the women's movement, but we just decided the one person would be the breadwinner for three years and they got to choose where we lived. Then there was a swap. I mean, the other one could work, but they, you know, they, weren't, they didn't have to worry about you know, bringing home the bacon. So he chose Southern California, and we nice went to choice. live. <laughs> it's all right. uh, because he, he was offered a job on a magazine called Psychology Today. And then I chose Edinburgh, which was a shock to him. <laughs> and uh, and I, I worked as the editor of a small magazine about social policy and social work and housing and stuff. And then he chose New York. And then we moved to New York. And that's when, you know, had a baby, pesticides, food, and, you know, we, we probably had to get more serious. So the, our experiment sort of came to an end then. Yeah. It's a shame. It's a model that it would be quite interesting to follow. It's quite hard in the industry, in any industry, really, to yeah. disappear for three years, come back and try and yeah. come back to the same place. But I wouldn't have, at that point, I was so taken up with this food, you know, that it's to try, you know, sort of getting to grips with that, that I don't think I've wanted to give it up. So when you came back to London, you approached the food program to join them? I or? did. Yeah. Um, I heard Derek Cooper, and I th- and I heard him, and I just thought, I have to work there, I have to work there. And um, so I looked up the producer's name in the Radio Times, and I wrote to her. I think even from when I started chefing to, to now, attitude to food has changed quite a bit. How do you think the, the show has changed, or even just your attitude to food? Well... Nobody was doing what we were doing then. This idea that, you know, the food, on, the pleasures of the food on your plate. Because because we live in a society where food is seen as trivial, you know, the food programme got away with murder. You could do things that in news and current affairs you would have been, would have had such a hard time doing. And, you, you know, and you could give politicians a hard time. There wasn't what there is now, this, this subculture, I hate to call it subculture, but this other culture of, of real food, of, of valuing, of, of, you know, I think BSE was the tipping point of that, where we, we all of us understood that cheap food had a price. The price of allowing the animal feed industry to put just right protein on their bags, and so that no farmers really, I mean, I don't know how many asked questions, but, you know, that they were being fed cows and sheep and chicken droppings and God knows what. And there they were, you know, we on our news screens, we saw cows going mad. And it was a horrible, horrible sight. And see. burning and everything. And burn, and yeah, the terrible things. And the cost, I mean, the billions it cost. And it made us cynical, too, because... Because the authorities assured us again and again and again and again that it was perfectly safe, it was British beef, and it better than anyone else's. And they lied and lied and lied and lied. Yeah, because of the cost of it all. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, it cost immensely more. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What other kind of major food investigations and stuff like that do, do you remember the kind of strike a big note with you? Well, I think there was that period when government policy was was all about making food production more rational. And one of the ways they wanted to make things more rational and safe was to make sure that all cheeses were made from pasteurized milk. And Whitehall said they were doing this because of EU legislation. And it turned out not to be true. It was deliberate mistranslation of EU legislation. And, of course, they fed into that Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph sort of attitude that, well, it was, you know, the French and the Italians, you know, they were all getting away with things. They didn't follow rules. We followed rules, you know, and, and, you know, and it was all corrupt. I was producing then, and we spent a day with the equivalent of the environmental health officer for the region around Paris. We went to see one of someone who was regarded as the best andouillette maker in that region, and to see how the environmental health officer worked with, you know, like, how can we ensure that the quality of your sausage does not fall in any way? But the legislation does say certain things about hygiene. Whereas what we were seeing in England was, you know, you'd go to a great cheesemaker and you'd, you know, you wouldn't even want to taste the cheese. You just want to say, no, you must put plastic in here and you must do this and you must do that. And it's going to cost you, you know, 50,000 quid, but, you know, that's your problem. And so covering that story, because we were in danger of, of really losing it, losing our territorial cheeses, they threatened. It's amazing to be part of seeing things change because now there's so much pride in local cheeses. Yeah. It could have completely been... It could have gone. You know, and if that had gone, of course, you wouldn't have had this upsurge of, you know, charcuterie makers yeah. and smoked fish and, you know, all the things that we... You know, all the jam makers and chutney makers and, you know, all this stuff. If we hadn't saved the cheeses, then... You know, the rest, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah, A lot of the programs lately are talking about relationship of food and health and food and diet. And you feel quite strongly about all of this. I do feel strongly about it. I mean, I, 
early on, before I was diagnosed with cancer, I mean, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I was curious about the relationship between diet and cancer. I, I can't, I don't, I guess it was about the time my sister had breast cancer. And there was research which showed epidemiological research, but, you know, it seemed to be a, a, there was a link between what you ate and what cancers you were vulnerable to. And But that was not a popular, I mean, it was seen as kooky and, you know, weird. And then, A, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a, a bone marrow cancer in 2011. So that concentrated my mind. And so I read a lot of stuff that I, I really didn't know, but, you know, stuff around the world about in Japanese hospitals, you get, you know, mushrooms when you're doing chemotherapy and, and, and the in the follow-up. But also there was a change happening in medical schools and in amongst doctors because this model, our medical system model, um, was formed in the, the, the Second World War. I mean, up to the Second World War, you know, there was the Peckham experiment and it, you know, there were there were different models of what of what health, what a national health program might look like. But then with the war, you know, with uh, antibiotics and, you know, this, there was this, suddenly this faith in science, I mean, quite reasonably enough. But as we got really interested in pills, we sort of lost the whole notion of, you know, there might be other contributors, how you lived, how you ate, and so on. But we're now in a position that between 60 and 70% experts calculate who walk through a GP's door on any day will be suffering from something that has to do with the way they live their lives, the way they eat, you know, the lack of sleep, the stress. The, but, you know, this really threatens the, the pill model. Yeah. And, so you know, the only for everything, isn't it? Yeah. Like, give it a pill. and Give it a pill, it. because that's what it's based on. And the pharmaceutical industry is very powerful, very powerful. Yeah. This was another thing you discussed on the show was that behind a lot of dietary advisory things are the sugar board or stuff like that where yeah. they're, yeah. you know, pumping the money in. So people change their reality slightly, like with the researchers back with the rats and, and pesticides. It's basically the same just with sugar or anything like that. You can make um, a study, a a study yeah. uh, lean in any yeah. kind of direction if you put enough money behind it. Yeah, what I mean, the famous thing is the aspartame. If you look at the studies paid for by the industry, they all say it's safe. And if you look at the ones from the independents, they all say there are problems of different, you know, there is different. reason to be cautious. But, you know, who pays for those studies makes an enormous difference to it. Yeah. Because this is the series about women, do you think your position or your investigations or anything like that was ever hindered by you being a woman? Do you think you were not let into places or not taken seriously? Or you think that was never something that manifested? Well, I sometimes think that not being taken seriously by politicians and the establishment worked to our benefit because, you know, they didn't think they had to, they didn't think they had to take you seriously. And, I mean, I think it's, you know, my being female and it being food is a... A connection. It's a connection, and I think it's very, for me, it's important. But it is getting over two prejudices in this society. You're female and therefore inherently trivial, and food is inherently trivial. And that's still an issue. A lot of young people, you and I were discussing this a bit earlier, but are going into the world of food but not actually ending up in restaurants. 
which is difficult for you. It's yeah. difficult for us, but for those that aren't ending up in restaurants, what kind of advice would you have for anyone that's trying to kind of get somewhere into the world of journalism? How can they get into the world of journalism, food journalism, anything to do oh, with like... God, that's so hard now. What you are paid now is is so little and... I had been writing for this magazine four or five years ago, and then they offered me some more work at half what I used to be paid, and you just say, get lost. <laughs> but, you know, I'm in a happy You position. can say that. I can say that. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you know, there's two of us, you know, there's, you know, not just my income, and it's a really hard thing to break into now. I mean, we were talking earlier about the way that women are so good at doing some styling, doing some writing, doing some illustration you know just working you know and then freelance cooking they put together these I imagine rather stressful but sometimes rewarding well I think built maybe around their own schedule even yeah. though I encourage women to come into kitchens rather yeah. than do all of that but you know that's that's a very out of a very selfish yeah. uh, need I think this kind of food adjacent jobs are what are bringing more women into the industry, even if it's not directly into restaurants. When you do the Food and Farming Awards, do you see more women out there producing some of these things? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, you asked me the change and, and that I've seen. I mean, the Food and Farming Awards started in 2000, and the change, you know, we get thousands of nominations, and, and, and you know, every nomination has to be read. You know, they're split up amongst two judges are assigned to each award and if you have a Roman Catholic upbringing like me you're just full of, full guilt. of guilt <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know and you get so you get so you know there's another fantastic marvelous wonderful bakery and you know and I get off to the you know my 949th <laughs> nomination I think yeah and what else are you doing to change the world you know and it's yeah. just so unfair anyway what we have seen in those 20 years is amazing influx of young people into, you know, food has become a respectable profession. You know, it has become something that you can dedicate your life to properly. It's phenomenal. Last year, the retailer of the year was this bakery in Barrow and Furnace, which is one of the poorest cities. You know, it used to be a shipbuilding place. It's got horrible drug problems. You know, it is really one of the forgotten places. And it just has this wonderful bakery that pulling people together and, you know, used by everybody. You know, it's not elitist posh bread. It's really good bread and it's doing marvellously in a place it's not supposed to be doing marvellously. Those awards are, they are the monitor of how things have changed around food. Yeah, there's been a big change even when I started listening to the awards to how much you kind of Mm. cover now. It's exciting. It is exciting, yeah. So on an optimistic note, we will end and let people ask you questions. Uh, everybody join me in thanking Sheila Dillon for a fascinating talk. That interview was part of our series, Who Run the World? Celebrating Women in Food. Thanks to our guest, Sheila Dillon. Thank you also to all the incredible women of Honey & Co., especially Louisa Cornford, she helps us with everything podcast, and to Miranda Hinckley, the producer. Drop us an email with your thoughts, feedbacks, questions. You can email us at podcasts at honeyandco.co.uk or you can find us on social media at Honey & Co. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get the rest of the series. See you next time. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.